Hey, Samantha, guess what? What? It's almost our 100th episode, and you know what that means. Special episode time and also Bigfoot. Yep, Bigfoot. That's right. If you are so inclined and you want to know more information about us, we are going to do a bonus Q&A episode for you. So be sure to write us in at at reapertales.com to submit your questions. You can also reach us, mostly Samantha, on our social media at Reaper Tells Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We will consider all and any questions as long as they're appropriate. We're not going to tell you our bra sizes. I'm sorry. Anyways, we look forward to our 100th episode and we can't wait to hear from you. In today's episode, we will be talking about a Black historical event that is filled with racism, violence against the Black community, and white supremacy. While we believe it is important to learn from these events in order to mitigate the continuation of it, I am well aware that this topic can be traumatizing, especially for those in the community in which this violence was targeted. So I wanted to give a trigger warning before we started. Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I'm going to talk about the Wilmington Insurrection and the Race Massacre. Yeah, so we kind of dropped the ball on Black History Month. So this will come out one day after Black History Month ends. But at least, you know, at least we're doing it. And keeping it going, maybe. Extending it out. Because uh, it doesn't have to be Black History Month to talk about Black history. Anyways, Samantha, what are we drinking? It is a bit early for me, so I am drinking water because I have moved from coffee to water. How about you? So I had a protein shake, which I just finished, coffee and water because... For those who know, they know, drink girlies. Never less than three of them. But yeah, this this is a heavy topic, so it's going to be a pick your poison. I did try to find like a black-owned liquor company out, based out of Wilmington, and I only found one, but they, they're originally from Wilmington, but they're based out of Chicago, so... I didn't, I didn't do that one. So if anybody who lives in Wilmington knows of one, uh, hit us up. I'd like to try it. Here, here. I can't say cheers because I'm drinking water. Yeah. Well, I cheers my coffee. It's bad luck. Look. It is. I'm not going to get into it, but my luck ain't been great, so I won't risk it. Fair enough. Let's just jump right into it because this is going to be kind of a long one. And I've already, like, skipped ahead in my notes, and forgive me. So, hopefully by now, most of us have learned about the Black Wall Street event. You guys know about that? The Tulsa Massacre? Oh, okay. Recent, in in the past few years, I've heard a lot of people talking about the Tulsa Massacre, also known as Black Wall Street. Basically, Black people had built up a community where they were very successful. They had businesses that they were running. 
They interacted with the white community and they were thriving. But as things happen, white supremacists did not like that and they burned the entire city to the ground. So that is like a more well-known Black Wall Street event that occurred, but it wasn't the only one to occur. The one I'm going to talk about today is a bit different, but it's too similar not to make the comparison to the Tulsa Massacre. And like I said at the top, I'm going to tell you about the Wilmington Insurrection and Race Massacre. And fun fact, which is not very fun at all, the Wilmington Insurrection is the only successful insurrection to take place in the United States. Oh. So, are you fact-checking me, Kelsey? No, I'm looking up what insurrection means because I'm a fucking idiot. (laughs) So, it is a... No, you should definitely bring that up whenever something like that happens because there's probably a a listener that's got the same question. So, an insurrection is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Kelsey, since you're looking it up, but from when I looked it up... And, of course, we had an insurrection event recently in the past couple of years. It is a violent attack on either the government or the body of people who are in power to overthrow their rule. So, okay, yeah, she's shaking her head. I'm right. Look, uh, I can remember stuff. Hey. (laughs) Oh, yikes. Before we jump into this story, it's important to understand that while the U.S. school system is great at whitewashing history and not teaching about anything that paints white individuals in a negative light, also, this is not a critique on teachers. It is a critique on the school system itself for restricting that. The reason we don't know about this particular portion of history is actually because it was falsely reported for a a century almost a century, like within months of a century. We didn't find out the truth about the story until recently. And to be clear, too, I got a lot of information about this event from several places. I didn't mention at the top my resources for this. You can go to the show notes and check them out. It is a very long list. But a good portion of the information I also got was from a documentary called Wilmington on Fire which is apparently not easy to watch. Yeah, I texted Samantha and Paul yesterday because it says that you can stream this documentary on Amazon. However, you can't stream it if you live in the South, apparently. Yeah. If you go on Amazon and you live, you know, North Carolina, Alabama, South Carolina, and you try to watch it on Amazon Prime, it says that it's not available in your area. Yeah, so... Instead of giving my money to Amazon, uh, what I did was I've you can go and watch it on YouTube or Venmo or Vimeo. Is it Vimeo? I think that's it. It's another like streaming service, kind of like YouTube. I, I think a lot of like music videos are on it, if I remember correctly. Are you looking it up? Vimo. Yeah, Vimo. That's it. V I M. E-O, Vimeo, I guess. Vimeo Yo. video experience platform. Yeah. So you can you can stream it either there or there. And, you know, again, like I said, instead of giving my money to Amazon, I just went ahead and um, donated what I would have spent on that to the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission. 
It works to preserve, share, and interpret history, traditional culture, practice, heritage sites, and natural resources associated with the Gullah Geechee people of coastal North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And I did put the link in the show notes for the donations to that. We've talked about the Gullah Geechee people in the past. What episode was that? You remember it was Spooky Bitches or it was a... Yeah, I don't remember, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Wasn't that the, um, you had sent Sophia a book that was related to that, the stew book or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The brew stew? stew? The boo stew, yeah. Yeah, the Gullah Geechee people were affected by this Wilmington massacre because Wilmington is a coastal city and... That's where a lot of them ended up living after they were freed. So, also, I love learning about the Gullah Geechee history. So, (laughs) if you can, donate there. There's also a couple other places I am putting in the show notes if you feel so inclined to donate to those. Wilmington, North Carolina in the late 1800s was a vastly different city than what it is today. Not only was the demographic majority black, black people were in a position of power within the community. Three of the 10 aldermen were black. The city had black health inspectors, postmasters, magistrates, and policemen, albeit under orders not to arrest anyone white. The county coroner, jailer, and treasurer were black, as well as the register of deeds, Black business people pooled their money in three Black-owned banks, which allowed Black families to begin buying homes of their own. They even had Black-owned newspa- a Black-owned newspaper. And if you're not familiar with that time, and even today, like some of this stuff still like echoes in today, Black people weren't allowed to own homes even after they were freed. Because, and they were restricted in that because banks would not lend to them. And so for them to pull their money into open banks, it opened up prosperity for them in this city, which was a huge game changer. So keep that in mind. This was obviously before the regulatory requirements of non-discriminatory actions. Correct, Amanda. When lending and having bank accounts. Yeah. Yes, all of that. And why we have that regulation, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, years of things like redlining and all of that stuff still affect that community and their ability to prosper and grow wealth. So while it's helped, uh, it didn't fix the entire problem. Now, this was all after the Civil War ended, and while many Southern cities had the same laws in place that protected Black people and allowed them to vote, other Southern cities fought back against these laws. They triggered deadly white violence against Black voters, organizers, and office holders. Wilmington was different, though. The city of 20,000 had 8,000 Black men who could vote now. And I know I said it's a majority black population in the city, 8,000 people out of 20,000. That was only men. It was not including, you know, women and children. So still, yes, majority black. I think it ended up being like 52% black. 
So it was, it was, you know, pretty even. And because of this, the political climate at the time, an alliance was found between white and black residents in Wilmington. And yes, we're going to talk about politics here. Just deal with it. Because the, the reason what happens in Wilmington, I mean, it's an insurrection. It is because of politics. So if that's not your cup of tea, okay, bye. But I do implore you to stay around and listen because it's an important part of history. Back in the mid to late 1800s, politics looked differently from what it looked today. The conservative party was actually the Democratic Party, while the Republican Party was the Liberal Party. But those weren't the only political parties at play during this time. In the 1880s, a severe economic recession hit, and white North Carolina farmers were suffering greatly from it. These farmers felt that neither the Republican or the Democrat Party were sympathetic to their plight, so they aligned with the Populist Party. This sounds relatively familiar. I feel like this kind of thing happens regular. Yeah, you see it over and over again throughout history. It's like a cycle. It pops up every so often. Truly. The Populist Party was also known as the People's Party. So you'll hear me call it Populist or People's Party. Uh, Just it depends on like what group is talking about it. During the 1892 election, a few Populist candidates won office, even though during this time, the combined votes of the Populist and Republican Party outweighed the Democrat Party. The Democrats walked away with majority in the state legislature, though. That's because the Populists and the Republicans, were, while they were taking votes away from the Democrat Party, they weren't, like, aligned on their goal, and so... It was split. It couldn't really. Yeah, it couldn't really. It's kind of like I mean, the liber- It's kind of like the Libertarians Party. It it'll pull votes from both sides. Yeah. So sometimes it can help, but unfortunately, you're not aligning to one side to help them either. So there's not enough to give you a majority. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in today's day and age and the political climate, a lot of us would like to not vote for <laughs> either not one vote of the party parties, at all. Though. Yeah, like not have a party at all. But our fear is that if we don't align on one, you know, we're going to end up with an even worse person in power. In this case, they actually did something that was really interesting and it worked out for them. After the 1892 loss to the Democrats, the Populist Party decided to regroup. While the white farmers that made up the Populist Party likely didn't care about the civil rights of the black Republicans, they realized that by making common cause with the Republicans, they could advance their political economic goals. Thus, the fusion coalition of Republicans and Populists was formed. This was then called, some people called it like the fusion party or just the fusion coalition. It was like a combination of Republican and populist parties coming together to kind of, because they did at the end of the day, they had a lot of ideals in common. And while they weren't a hundred percent, it was better that they aligned to make a difference. I mean, again, that's kind of like the libertarians going with the Democrats now. It's, it's very similar. Yeah. And just to, to make it clear, the parties have swapped <laughs> in a lot of like a lot of the things that I was watching, like YouTube videos on it and all of that stuff. 
there were knuckleheads in the comments like, see, Democrats aren't that great, blah, blah. And I'm like, bro, bro, At some point they swapped. 1950s. Let's look at it. (laughs) There was was just a 180 for both parties. So just, just to be clear, these parties change in what they support. And they flip from liberal liberal to conservative, conservative to liberal. We're not saying that Demo- Democrats are conservative now. Read your history. Now, once they formed the Fusion Coalition in 1894, this coalition took control of the—1894 was another election. They took control of the state legislature and elected a populist and a Republican to the U.S. Senate. Which, uh, quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. They worked together again in the 1896 election, and fusion, fusionists retained control of the legislature and even elected a Republican governor. They enacted reforms that benefited the Black community and the white working class. During the fusionist era, Wilmington was the most populous city in North Carolina. It had a busy commercial port with a strong economy. It wasn't just the white individuals who were prospering from the economy either. Wilmington had a thriving black middle class. The community as a whole seemed to be working, living, and thriving cohesively together. White and black people intermingled in business, community, and even in relationships, which was not done back then. (laughs) Yeah, it was not. People didn't take kindly to that. White business owners bought out advertisements in the Black-owned newspaper called The Daily Record. The Daily Record was operated by Alexander Manley. And and his brother was also a part of the newspaper. But we're going to focus mostly on Alexander. Alexander Manley, also known as Alex, was the acknowledged grandson of Governor of North Carolina, Charles Manley. Charles Manley, a white man, meant that Alexander was more white passing. This comes up only in the sense that Alexander, when he goes to marry his wife, she is a black woman. And it's, it's funny because in the documentary, the, his grandson is talking about this and he says, you know, they didn't like the fact that he was so light skinned. So he was treated a little bit differently in that sense, but he was also treated Differently in the sense that at the end of the day, he was still a black man. So the racism was still there. Now, Alexander went to Hampton and studied commercial painting and possibly printing. His grandson couldn't get full documents on that, but he thinks he he um, studied printing because he ended up printing a newspaper, you know, all that stuff. Alexander moved to Wilmington to work and ended up falling for his boss's daughter. This is before he starts. Okay. (laughs) And they marry. uh, And shortly after marrying his boss's daughter, he opened the only daily black-owned newspaper in the country at the time. And he was extremely successful. Like, everybody bought his newspaper if I remember correctly, it was only one of two in the city of Wilmington. So, get it. At the same time all of this is going on, there's another newspaper based out of Raleigh called Raleigh News and Observer. 
at this newspaper, there was a publisher by the name of Josephus. Yes, Josephus. Okay. J-O-S-E-P-H-U-S. Daniels. What a stupid name. <laughs> oh, it's unique. And I, I looked this dude up because he's a dick bag. We're just uh, right out the gate. He's a dick I was bag. assuming so since you're making fun of his name. At least I was hoping so. He looks like the he looks like the off brand Kevin Spacey. <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna look him up, him like we don't like Kevin Spacey either. But like he does, he looks straight up like the off brand Kevin Spacey. The generic anyway. version. Yeah, generic version. Uh, what is what is the uh, Walmart brand? Uh, Sam's Choice. great value. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Great he's he's great value, Kevin Spacey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say his name uh, again so I can look him up. It's uh, Josephus, J-O-S-P-H-U-S, Daniels. <laughs> Kelsey's just nodding. <laughs> uh, just, just shaking her head. Yeah, he does. I was just like, what was, what was Kevin Spacey doing? Wait. Because if you look at it real quick, you're like, oh, is that? Oh, it's not. Okay. Anyway. So Josephus was a, and I'm I'm not going to call him Daniels. I'm going to keep calling him by this stupid name. He was a huge advocate for the Democrats. Surprise, surprise. One day he meets with a man named Bernifold Simmons, who was the chairman of the state's Democrat Party. These two dipshits wanted to do something about the political situation in North Carolina. Because at the time, it was rapidly flipping Republican. And they were losing control of the situation. They wanted to eliminate Black people from being able to hold office or even show up on the ballot. They openly professed their intentions, labeling this project the, quote, white supremacy campaign unquote. Ew. Very ew. Uh, when we get into some of these names that they give themselves, no creativity. I mean, at least they're being clear on their intentions, I guess. Yeah. They were going to steal the upcoming 1898 federal and state election. So they pre-planned this. Pre-planned it. They did this in several different ways. The first was to exploit the inherent racism of the white populist supporters. This was a multi-step process. First, Josephus used his very influential newspaper to spread propaganda about black people. During this time, many people couldn't read, so they used the cartoons in the newspaper to create <sighs> depictions of black people in very derogatory settings. And yeah, like, obviously, I watched the documentary. I saw some of It's disgusting. Go and look that up if you want to see it. I do not recommend. They also cultivated a narrative that Black people were, quote, stealing, unquote, the jobs from white people. I knew Me. that's where that was going. I knew it. That whole South Park episode, they took our jobs. Like, <sighs> my guys. Every the stuff that's being said, just new, newsflash, the stuff that's being said today has been said for over a century. 
and it's always against poor people and people of color. Yeah. It's not new. And and in this case, like, and what it's not Joseph- any truer today than it was then. No, I know. And this is this tactic is still used today to demonize and to spread misinformation and propaganda against marginalized groups, especially black people. Well, it's still done today because it still works. Yeah. What they did is they took a poor group of white people who weren't as well educated, who didn't have a lot of resources economically and things like that. And they said, you don't make enough money because black people are taking those jobs from you. Instead of them being able to step back and recognize that the people who are in a position of power are feeding that information to them. It's infuriating. Anyways, I've got some soapbox on that coming up. You're, you're welcome. So yeah, they, they are telling white people, black people are taking your jobs. Uh, this is leading to the wage disparities between races, which while black people were employed more in Wilmington during this time, say it with me, capitalism, baby. <laughs> they were paid at a much lower rate than that of the white people at the time. White people also felt they were paying way more in taxes than black people, which they found unfair because black people held the majority of the jobs in the city. But the reason they were paying more taxes was because they were landowners and homeowners, property owners. And up until very recently, black people were unable to buy homes. So they're paying property taxes. They're paying taxes because of privilege. Yeah. That's also not changed much, to be perfectly honest. And that's something that we don't pay attention to. It's that situation. I've talked to family members before. People say it's not fair. They only say it's not fair when they are not currently seeing the benefit. They don't see the fact that sometimes it's not fair and you're getting the benefit of that unfairness that you don't have a problem with. What you have a problem with is when you're not getting a benefit from it, you're the one that's having to pay the price. And you got to take both. If you're going to take the privilege, you got to take the unfairness on the other side too. Yeah. You know, equal rights, equal prosperity, equal economic standing, equal all that does not mean that you're something is being taken away from you. It just means that everybody's getting an equal share. Nobody's going to get more than Not you. mutually exclusive. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a hard concept for people to really wrap their brain around. And this is such a shining example of what, what could be if we allowed that to happen. You know, Wilmington was the most prosperous city at that time in North Carolina and even in the East Coast. So, you know, yikes. I think what's killing me right now is just how much similarity. This is a hundred years ago, and we're still we're still dealing with the exact same issues. Well, and there's a reason that and we it's are. Just, this like, isn't we don't taught. learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're also not taught this, or it is actively covered up for a century. Well, you can't learn from history if you aren't aware of it. Very true. From what I could tell, these tactics worked 
on the white populist party. They began to question their alliances with the Republican Party. To make matters worse, this bitch named Rebecca Ann Felton opened her stupid mouth. Rebecca was the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate, though she only served for a day because she was a stupid bitch. While Rebecca was a staunch advocate for prison reform, like she, she was an advocate for some pretty great things. She was an advocate for prison reform, women's suffrage, and education reform. She was also a prominent white supremacist. Gross. Which, if you're a white supremacist, you aren't an advocate for the others. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. You you can't support equal rights for one group and actively be a part of a group that's suppressing another marginalized group. That's not how this works. We all get equal rights or none of us do. None of us are free until we're all free. There you go. During the summer of 1898, Rebecca made a speech where she openly called for lynching black men. Because they posed a threat to white women. You know, the old narrative that white women need to be protected at all costs. And she... I I didn't want to quote it directly in here because it it is such a disgusting quote and it's very upsetting. But it was something along the lines of, we need to lynch black men, a thousand black men until this never happens again, which she's talking about like black men raping white women. Is that whole like pure white women are delicate. They're pure, you know, everybody. And it leads like white men to want to like protect them at all costs, which includes, you know, being racist and white supremacist. But yeah, she was just like, yeah, we just need to, we need to lynch them because they, they're rapists and she she called them some very uh terrible names and you can guess what those are i'm not gonna say them anyways this led to the white man of the populist party staunchly moving in to the other side at this point because they're like you know you can take my money you can take my jobs but don't don't touch my wife daughter sister whatever ugh, just ugh. Alexander Manley wouldn't let this fly, though. He swiftly responded to Rebecca's speech in the Daily Record. He argued that white rape of black women was much more frequent, and contact between white women and black men was often consensual, which, all true statements. Plantation owners didn't have a bunch of mixed children for no reason. That was rape. Uh, Let's just be clear. As you can imagine, this wasn't well-received. But but before we carry on with that storyline, I have to introduce another tactic used by the Democrats at this time, and that's the Red Shirts. The Red Shirts were a paramilitary extension of the Southern Democratic Party. They were basically the Ku Klux Klan, They just didn't hide their face. They wore red shirts, and they were directed by our government. And they were indeed directed by our government. During this time, prominent Democratic leaders began recruiting for a group called the, and this is where these group names are coming up, so get ready. There's a few of them. A group called the White Government Union. 
This union used fear of loss of labor to black people as a recruiting tactic that was known as the, quote, white laborers union, unquote. These unions were widely accepted across North Carolina and had a, quote, white government union constitution drawn up. It was voted on and passed in 1898. This basically gave carte blanche to the red shirts. And I do want to point out that in this documentary, one of the researchers points out himself that while this constitution and the bylaws were voted in 1898, they have never been able to find that there was ever a vote to abolish this constitution. So as far as we know, it is still in play in North Carolina. Big ol' yikes. Another great point from one of the interviewers made in this documentary was that these white men, white supremacists, red shirt terrorist groups around, a lot of them were fueled by the loss of the Civil War. While it was still, you know, a couple of decades later, the group had begun to build itself out of the ashes of the Confederate Party. These men felt cheated and robbed of a victory, not because the Union the Union soldiers defeated them, and not because Abraham Lincoln had defeated them, but because of their previously owned slaves' complicity with the Union Army and ultimately their downfall on that side of the war. The if you're if you're not like a history buff or you didn't learn a lot or you forgot portions of your childhood, the Union was actually losing badly to the Confederate Army until they negotiated equal pay and rights with previous slaves. These newly freed men were the tipping point that allowed the Union to win the war. So these men, who feel like they've had everything stolen from them, are now seeing Black people prosper and intermingle with groups of white people who were previously very poor and under the thumb of rich plantation owners. It only fueled like this hate and this rage within their like terrorist group. And like just just a note, like I'm not trying to sympathize or empathize with like the white supremacist groups in this. I don't believe like there's any excuse for it. I, I just found it like an interesting insight to why they exist. But, you know, we know white supremacists. It's still a thing today, but I've never fully understood why, like what the driving force behind it was. So I just, I, I found that like an interesting take on it. And I can see that being the reason why. I mean, the problem is they're viewing these other people as other and less than. So it's unfair that these less than individuals are able to have the same rights as me because I yeah. deserve more. And that's, just, that's, that's the bare minimum of what they're thinking is you are not a real person compared to me. So you should not have the rights that I do. And that's what it boils down to. You don't see them as another human being who deserves the same rights and privileges as you. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's like that whole thought process of, well, I, I own you. Like, I own you. How dare you like rise up against me and think that you can, you know, wrestle back any type of existence or power or anything like that. It's, it's all at the end of the day, it's all gross. Don't be a white supremacist. It's that feeling of you owe me. 
yeah. you owe me everything that you have, but you're also not allowed to have everything. Yeah. True. I would so agree be, with that. be grateful to me for what you do have, but also don't have too much because you can't have more than me. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but I just wanted to, you know, I, I like that take on it and I helped me understand a little bit more of like what this could possibly, the reason why, because, you know, everybody wants a reason. But also, I, you know, I never look too closely at it because the subject of white supremacy makes me really uncomfortable. But, you know, continuing to not acknowledge it is also continuing a cycle of, you know, comfortable ignorance. So there's me acknowledging it. I feel terrible. And I'd like a donut. Anyways, once the red shirts were in play and Alexander had published his retort in the newspaper, things quickly went downhill in Wilmington. The election was fast approaching and what previously looked like a landslide win for the Fusion Party and if you don't remember, that's the Republican Party and the Populist Party, was quickly beginning to be squashed. Leading up to the election, red shirts prowled the streets of Wilmington at night, breaking into the homes of black people and white Republicans. They threatened them with violence if they voted in the election. Sometimes they would outright beat them in their homes as a way to deter them from going to vote. Their propaganda against the black community also swayed the populist vote Democratic in this election. On election day, the red shirts showed up armed to the polling places that were known to be the majority black and Republican places of voting. It was an intimidation tactic. And the night before election, a meeting in Wilmington was held. It was led by Alfred M. Waddell, a former congressman and Confederate general. He ordered the more than 1,000 men, that's the red shirts, to go to the polls and basically intimidate those that would vote against the Democrats. If you have 1,000 men out there in red shirts, racist as hell, carrying guns, are you going to go in and vote? Hell no. Quote, this is what um, Alfred M. Waddell said to them that night. Quote, you are the sons of noble ancestry. Jesus Christ. Some Nazi shit. You are Anglo-Saxons. You are armed and prepared and you will do your duty. Go to the polls tomorrow and if you find the Negro out voting, tell him to leave the polls. If he refuses, kill him. Shoot him down in his tracks. Unquote. Let's unpack that. You, you want to unpack that? Not really. I mean, that's just disgusting. What a gross man. I, I, what? What? And you openly said this. You are a government leader and you openly said, like, it blows my mind. So, some of the shit that people say in our government now, but Holy shit, my guy. Wow. On election day, some black and white Republicans braved the polls, but many were were swayed to stay away, like enough that the Democrats retook the North Carolina legislature. They recaptured county governments and monopolized the state's congressional delegation. Just to make sure 
the count went their way, red shirts not only intimidated black and white Republicans from voting, they also attacked the polls and stuffed the ballot boxes, in some cases producing Democratic margins of a victory that exceeded the number of registered voters in the district. Sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, Truly. While the Democrats seized power back in the state, the city's multiracial government was still in place. The elections for that weren't due until March of 1899. Because, you know, city, state, federal, whatever. They're, they're all on, like, different voting cycles. So there, there are still black people at the city level that are in this government right now after all of this has happened. And it didn't sit well with the white supremacists in Wilmington. The group at this time included the Red Shirts, the White Government Union, and a group of leading white businessmen who called themselves, quote, Secret Nine, unquote. The, these people have no creativity. It's like they ask their, t- what, what, should our, what should our white supremacist group be called? Toddler. And the toddler's like, I don't know. Is it a secret? How about Secret Nine? There's nine of you. Uh, I don't know. It's so stupid. These names are dumb. Before the election, these groups prepare for what would follow the election. Again, they're showing like they're showing that they are preparing for this. They're actively working towards doing this. They went to local merchants and forced them to stop selling ammunition to black customers. And conveniently for the white supremacist groups, the local black militia had been called up to serve in the Spanish-American War and were all deployed in Georgia at that time. On the other hand, two white militia units, including the Wilmington Light Infantry, were present in Wilmington, ready to augment the red shirts. Finally, having made little attempt to hide their plans to retake the government of Wilmington, the white supremacist campaign had drawn a number of reporters from national newspapers to the town, whom they entertained and filled with fabricated reports of an imminent race riot they claimed had been planned by the black community. So they're already preparing to attack the city, push out any black citizens, push out anybody that they don't like on the government, and they're preparing to blame it on the black community. On November 9th, the day after the election, the Wilmington Messenger published the, quote, White Declaration of Independence, unquote. You guys gotta chill the fuck out. It was a list of resolutions promising that whites would never again be ruled by, quote, men of African origin, unquote that blacks would no longer be allowed to vote and that white men would be given, quote, a large part of the employment hereto-after given to the Negroes, unquote. It demanded that Manly leave, this is Alexander, Manly leave the city within 24 hours. And he did. He, like, dipped the fuck out of there. The, re- the resolution also demanded the resignations of the mayor and chief of police. A committee led by Waddell presented the demands to a group of prominent black citizens mandating compliance by the next morning. In the documentary, it does say that the uh, prominent 
Black citizens that were sent this responded and said, look, we, we want this to be peaceful. Like, we'll do whatever you ask. Can we come to an agreement? Let's make this peaceful. You know, like any rational person would do. I, I would definitely not describe the other party as rational. That's, oh, no, 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 no. That would be the last word I would use at this point. Truly. I could use a truly right about now. On the morning of November 10th, Wandell led 2,000 white men, he's doubled the people, to the office of the Daily Record. This is Alexander's newspaper. They claimed to be looking to ensure Alexander had left, but somehow one of them spilled a whole bunch of fuel in the building, and somehow one of them lit a match that burned the newspaper to the ground. It also, the fire spread to the buildings and homes surrounding the newspaper. Oops. That yeah, complete sure. accident. By 11 that morning, the violence had spread across the city. The multiple groups of white supremacists turned their guns on black citizens. And yes, some of the black citizens who owned firearms did fire back. But I would expect them to. They're defending themselves. Yeah. Some, some people use that as an argument that they started this whole thing when there's speeches and documentation and all this other stuff that proves that the Democratic leaders used a terrorist group of white supremacists to instigate this. During this violent attack, Waddell forced the resignation of elected officials and appointed himself to the office of the mayor. Because that's how that works. Black residents, mostly women and children, fled the city and hid for three days and two nights in the swamps and the black cemeteries surrounding the city. The morning after the attack, prominent black and white Republican citizens were marched to the train station and they were told to leave. They were also told that they would be killed if they returned. In the weeks following, around 2,100 black citizens fled the city. The death toll for the black community that day is unknown for certain, but it is generally believed to be around 60 killed that day. And I've even seen some places that said it, it was as much as 60 to 300 killed and injured. This was and is the only successful insurrection carried out in the United States. In the aftermath of the insurrection and massacre, the city of Wilmington solidified its government as Democrat after the March election. This government helped pave the way to impose Jim Crow laws in the city, which ended up eventually spreading, as we know, across the South, these more strict Jim Crow laws. The events were written up falsely as a race riot following it. It was said that black citizens rioted after they lost the election and that the group of white supremacists only fought back against their riots and violence against whites. This was written into history books in Wilmington. It was believed to be the true story of what happened that day for a century. In one place I did... And I, f I forget which, I think it was a YouTube video, or it might have been that documentary. There was an initial account of what happened that day, and it painted the white supremacists in a 
golden light, that they were only protecting the city, and it demonized Black people. But a, a few years later, they a reporter went to somebody who was present that day of the massacre, and they stated what the truth was. And it was published, I believe, but it was well-received because people thought that the white supremacists did what was right by removing black people. So in, inherently people, even though the first account was said the way that it was because there were legal repercussions to it, but then later on they accepted the second story but never wrote it into history or taught it because they didn't want to be shown in a bad light. But everybody was like, yeah, that was, you know, yeah, good job, bro. It, it, was, all, it was very icky. Over the decades, the story the story did change a little bit. It softened a little bit. Some of the wording was changed and how it was presented and written up for like history. It went from being blacks attack whites in the, you know, it was very propaganda based to race riot in Wilmington. Like over the years, the way they phrased what the event was lost its like I don't I don't really know how to how to say it. Some media specialist could probably tell me what I'm trying to say, but it lost its impact. And the narrative was kind of changing, but it, at the end of the day, it was still being taught as like the black community started this. This thankfully wouldn't always be the case. As the 100-year anniversary of the massacre approached, the black American descendants of those who suffered through it, along with some academics, called for a re-examination of what truly happened. In 1998, a symposium was held at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. In 2000, North Carolina's General Assembly established the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission, which leveraged earlier scholarly investigation, conducted public hearings, and undertook detailed analysis of primary and secondary sources. The 500-page report that resulted examined the history of the coup and massacre. It also provided recommendations to repair the moral, economic, civil, and political damage wrought by the violence and discrimination resulting from a conspiracy to retake control of city, county, and state governments by a Democratic Party's white supremacy campaign. Unquote. So, the producer and the director of the Wilmington on Fire documentary has actually crowdsourced to do a follow-up documentary, Wilmington on Fire 2, pretty much. I was initially going to donate to this crowdsourcing, but then I realized, like, they closed the campaign. They already had the funds. They've already filmed the second one. They just haven't released it yet, but it's going to go into, like, the uh, descendants of the victims of the massacre and where they're at in pursuing, you know, justice and pursuing reparations for what happened. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, it, if it comes out, we'll post it on our social media that it's out and you should go watch it. I truly think that you should go watch the first documentary. And yeah, that's the Wilmington insurrection and race massacre. Happy Black History. Wow. And thank you for sharing. Yeah. That's the only way that 
we learn is to talk about what actually happened in the past. So truly. Uh, yeah. So that was not fun to research. I don't imagine so. So, you know, do your, do, do your homework. And around, and around this time, you know, there were multiple, you, you know, you had the Tulsa massacre, you had the Charleston massacre and all of these were due to race and they were instigated a lot of the times by most of the time white supremacists and and the red shirts so Which that's not was, something i'd ever heard of either yeah i i didn't know about them well now you do yeah for better or for worse for better or for worse so oh they did do they are they did put up a monument uh telling the truth about what actually occurred in wilmington in wilmington uh, around 2018, I believe it was. I'm just really glad that what there were still document there was still documentation and there was still an ability to pull the actual history and be able to clearly state what actually happened rather than being able to eliminate that from the history books. Yeah. Because that, I- that definitely happened on multiple occasions for several different situations like this. Truly. And it might have continued had, you know, the, their descendants, their family members had not really pushed to get it changed. So kudos, you know, to them for really sticking with it and making sure that we all like know the truth. And it's it's incredibly sad to me that the black community in Wilmington, they had built prosperity they had built economic stability for them and they were on track to have a a sense of like generational wealth and generational like stability and all of that was because when they were run out of Wilmington their homes their businesses everything that they had spent their entire lives growing was just gone it was no longer theirs and they had no money from like resale, they had nothing. It's it set them all the way back, and it's just yeah. That, that, I found that incredibly upsetting. But if you watch the documentary, you can see some of the grandchildren, great grandchildren, and they seem to be doing great. So dig it. Anyways, that's enough from me. Any thoughts outside of what I already shared? No, that was a lot. And it was a heavy, it was a heavy topic. Um, But like I said, I'm glad that you covered it um, because I hadn't heard anything about it. And I will be looking for that documentary and I will watch it if I can find it. You should send me a link. (laughs) I I have it in my show notes here. So if anybody wants to go in and watch it, it's the YouTube link in the show notes. Until next time, we love you. We mean it. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. The